For July 9th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 523. She gave good magic. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. Our favorite thing to do is hang out together and talk about the things we love. This week, we are talking Ant-Man and the Wasp, the latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I should say, uh, like, ye tragical history of Ant-Man and the Wasp, but uh, whenever, uh, but I, I should give the spoiler alert at the beginning we are going to be spoiling ant-man and the wasp through the credits the after credit scene so uh, if you don't want that if you don't want to hear details of the plot of that movie stop now everybody dies they all die <laughs> and <laughs> except ant-man ant-man gets in stuck the quantum realm. in the quantum realm Forever, It is tragic. This was supposed to be lighter fare, but this movie is like a shaggy dog story. It's like making you care about about the characters, and then they like walk down the street and get hit by a random bus. They're not even part of the Infinity War plot, right? And what are the odds? What are the odds that three people on the same roof are going to get taken out by the snap, right? It's 0.5 to the third. 0.5 times 0.5 that's 0.25 if you're if you're keeping track times 0.5 which is 0.125 percent odds no way does does uh <laughs> michelle pfeiffer and michael douglas and evangeline Lilly all disappear off of the same roof it's just you know in in a film that sticks really that hews really close not only to scientific fact but to sociological fact uh as as regards harmony among different <laughs> races and ethnicities um Hey, Matt, this, R- is, <laughs> this is just a bridge too far for me, a bridge to the quantum realm too far. Matt, remind me never to go to a casino with you if you think one in eight odds are a sure thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying it's not it's not going to happen. It's not. I mean, you, well, I guess one in eight times it's going to it's going to happen. Anyway, yeah. uh, ranting aside, I'm Matt Rather and I am here with my good friend, Pete Fenzel. Pete, what's that? Hey, what's that? <laughs> and, hey, hey, yo, Pete, put Mark Lee on the phone. Hey, 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 yo, hey, yo, Mark, hey, yo, Mark Lee, are you there, man? Yeah, 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 hey, Pete. What up? What up? I'll cover it in Matt. I'll cover it in Matt. Okay. What up? What up? Ah, yes, I fondly remember that commercial that from the mid nineties. References made. <laughs> references hereby made, like an old letter to the IRS or something like that. References hereby made to the classic and much beloved uh, the Budweiser commercial from. Back in the day. I don't even know where to start. I mean, Pete, if you had to think about the whole movie <laughs> Ant-Man, oh, just in a, in, in a way, like in a, in a big kind of together way, as opposed to a, uh, you know, small scale and kind of a part, like in a uh, sort of grand unified way, would you say, uh, do you have a string theory of Ant-Man in the quantum sure. realm? Do you have a grand unified theory of Ant-Man? Well, I'll answer your question with a question, Matt. Do you like Do you like James Joyce's Ulysses? <laughs> do I? I've actually never read James Joyce's Ulysses. I was always more a poetry guy than a novel guy, so I really have holes in my uh, oh, in man. my education. That's great. You haven't watched James. You haven't read James Joyce's Ulysses. Oh, I've watched it. I've neither, I have neither read it. The mid-90s animated after-school special. No, and me. First, you guys haven't seen Highlander. Now you haven't read Ulysses. <laughs> Oh man, what am I going to do with you guys? No, so um, it's my theory of Ant Man is that it is somewhat reminiscent, not entirely, but somewhat reminiscent of James Joyce's Ulysses, in the sense that James Joyce's Ulysses is the story of the Odyssey, but it is translated into a kind of humorous and ironical and deeply referential. 
everyday life story that takes place over like a much smaller scale. Right. And it's supposed to be the day that this guy meets his wife is the day that the whole sort of whole odyssey happens. And so my theory, and we can talk about substantiating it, is that Ant-Man, if, if it felt like Ant-Man and the Wasp wasn't really a complete movie on its own, I would say that it probably isn't. But what it instead is, is the sort of central question facing Infinity War 2, like going from Infinity War 1 into Infinity War 2, baked into a small-scale, humorous movie that takes place over the course of a couple of days. And there's tons of symbolism and discussion uh, that is related to Infinity War Part Two that happens during Ant-Man and the Wasp. Now, maybe this is just because I have Infinity War Two on the brain. Maybe it's actually in there. I kind of think it's actually in there. And I want to float this idea out there as a way of interpreting and understanding the story, partly because I, once I started seeing the references come up, I couldn't think of anything else. Uh, and, um, you know, for example, right, the, the most obvious one, the most obvious one that jumps out the clearest, and I'll say this, there's, I've got many, many examples, but I'm not going to hash them all out just in a monologue, but the most obvious one is, I'm going to refer to this character as Goliath, uh, the, the old Ant-Man Goliath buddy pair, uh, played by Lawrence Fishburne. Goliath is talking to Ghost, and Ghost says that she is going to go kill or kidnap Ant-Man's daughter, to hold Ant-Man's daughter hostage, to get his compliance. And and uh, Goliath says, no, you know, that's over the line. You can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. I'm not going to allow it. This whole time, I've been, you know, good, and I've been helping you, but this is over the line, and it's not acceptable. And then she says, hey, uh, you're not the one about to fade out of existence into nothing, right? I, I'm the one who this is going to happen to. I have to go do this. Now, of course, when you hear that line, your first thought should be, actually, he probably is the one who's going to fade out into his own existence because we know well, the one thing that we know about this movie going into it is that between the end of the movie, uh, during the credits, the Thanos is going to snap his fingers. And after the credits of the movie, we're going to see the effect that the snap has had on all these characters that we've gotten to know in this movie. That should I think that should be the big assumption going into the movie that like the movie's going to happen and then the snap's going to happen during the credits. And then the after credits are going to tie us back in to the main Avengers uh, storyline, which is what indeed happened. And in fact, like we said, I think in a previous podcast, Ant-Man ended up surviving the snap because he was small during it and got large after it, which was teased in the commercial when they, the car gets small and the car and, and Luis is like, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. And it gets big. And he says, Oh, we didn't die. Right. Uh, and which I, we talked about was like another sort of connection and foreshadowing related to the plot. But but basically this idea that like you're not the one who's going to fade from existence to me is a big nod that this story is very highly concerned with the events of Infinity War. And uh, and that I think if you start looking, you start finding a lot of other stuff that's related to the events of Infinity War, except it's all jokes. It's all played for jokes. It's played for laughs. And it all fits into this sort of goofy superhero story. So it's almost like. Uh, a secret code. And uh, in that sense, I was curious whether you liked Ulysses because it's kind of a tricky book to decode. And, and I mean, it's not like Finnegan's Wake or anything, but it's like it's tedious to like go through it and read all the glosses and, and kind of get all of it if you really want to grasp it. And it comes from this idea that people ought to go to this sort of trouble for this sign of literature. Um, and I thought that Ant-Man kind of uh, suffered a little bit from this, I mean, the other piece of evidence is, of course, that his aunt is named Ulysses S. Ant, but I don't know if that's a, 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 a good example. I'm curious what you guys think about this kind of reading, either in terms of do you think this is accurate, inaccurate? Do you think it's a fun or not fun way of looking at the movie or also just these kinds of stories where things are so related and so referential that it's really hard to see one story outside of the context of the ones around it. I'm just curious whether this strikes you guys at all or resonates with you. Well, I mean, let me take a little bit of issue, Pete, with the, your notion that the movie is incomplete. Um, okay. Because uh, I found it to be um, satisfying enough mm -hmm. as a complete story, in particular with this whole notion of family reunion, right? Um, I mean, you know, it's because this is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you can always look outside of the boundaries of that and say, like, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Um, so, I mean, the answer can be both, right? I mean, it, it, I think it works pretty well as a standalone as a standalone story about the Phantom Reunion, and it's very fun, and it has, uh, you know, satisfying conclusions to it, um, and uh, and it can also be 
this uh, sort of uh, foreshadowing of, of, of Infinity War 2 and have all these sort of dark readings to it. Um, I, uh, I, I, I'm choosing because just, you know, for all the rough times that everyone's going through these days, I'm choosing to uh, go for the lighter, lighter side of this and see the glasses half full and half empty. But Mark, even, but, yes. even if you are right... Is not the idea of family reunion and lost loved ones coming back to us right at the core of where we are in the Infinity War arc right now uh, in the MCU? Yes. Oh, yes, I just torpedoed your whole idea. <laughs> no. I, I thought you were also. I thought you were also uh, as as the worst family reunion left my lips. It also was like, oh wait, okay, that's also reminding us of the darker times that we are going through right now. <laughs> so to Not make quite another, parallel, but. to to make another reference, when what are we going to refer to Walton Goggins's character as Cadillac Jones? What did he have an actual name? By the way, that Escalade. Oh, I mean, we to make a quick comment on the cars. Yes, please. One of the. One of the clearest indications of my reading is that the first car that the Wasp shows up in is an Infinity crossover. But uh, <laughs> neither oh, <pretty> <laughs> oh. Um, and though they do have an Elantra, I think it's one of those speedy Elantras that they just came out with later. But when the Walton Goggins in his giganto gold plated Escalade has a conversation, what, but I guess I'm going to float that question. What do we call him? What did you call Walton Goggins character like in your mind? Chain from the shield. Chain from the shield. Okay. <laughs> or actually, I mean, honestly, the the justified character has almost uh, eclipsed that in my mind, though. Two two great characterizations. Um, and I I also like when I saw Walton Goggins, it was like, way to make the leap, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> way to become a movie actor, you know. Yeah. He was in. I think he was in the Magnificent Seven remake. Yeah. As well, Good I'm point. not sure. But but I mean that's not the I mean hard that's not oh I've made it I'm in the Magnificent Seven remake, but um so first of all I'll point out just a sort of side note he Walton Goggins or sorry Shane from the Shield wants to Cadillac Jones wants to get the Pym Lab for buyers in scare quotes that he has who don't take no for an answer and are willing to pay a lot of money for it and at the very beginning of the movie you're led to think that it's the same people as are the ghost. But then he's really surprised when the ghost shows up and the ghost turns out to be in cahoots with a professor, which means they don't have enough money for anything. So uh, we don't, I want to check in with you guys and confirm whether I missed something. We never find out who his buyers are. Do we? No, not that I believe. Okay. Okay. I remember. So, so, okay. So tabling that because that, that was, he, it's, yeah, the buyers. I'm not sure. It's it's a little confused as to whether it's the the young upstart guy in the FBI, who uh, who is his quote unquote buyer, who just wants the thing for you know promotion at promotion at work, or whether it's actual nefarious doers of bad things who are going to use the quantum energy for you know whatever for for profit. Yeah, I thought it was more of like a Loki from the Avengers or Ronan the Destroyer situation or Ronan the Accuser situation where he's working for somebody and he's working for some sort of shady behind the scenes guy and we don't know who it is. But but anyway, putting that aside, in the conversation that Cadillac Jones has with the girl from Lost in the, the French restaurant, we oui. <laughs> yes to farm to table, yes to organic, yes to sustainable, uh, a delightful, delightful high concept restaurant. He says a couple of things. He says that um, relationships are built on trust. He says, your name isn't Susan. Your name is Hope, which felt I mean, yes, her name is actually Hope. It's like her first name. But the movie tends to hammer that there is this character of hope, this thing that is hope that is uh, bestowed on both the Wasp and also Ant-Man's daughter, because they're compared to each other constantly through the movie, the Wasp and Ant-Man's daughter, and how each of them are in some way hope. And he says, uh, if you were to leave, you would take my heart with me, but it would heal in time. And this is what struck me, right? It's like, that's like a lot of really strange things for this grunt to say, right? To make these sort of like very highfalutin, you know, comparisons of her to sort of abstract concepts and for them to have this sort of presumed relationship. And and the way that I and also later on to compliment this, when Ant-Man is tied to the chair and the ghost is interrogating him, he says, oh, are you going to reach into my heart and my chest and crush my heart? 
right? And she says, not unless I have to. And we've already established how she's kind of wants to be Thanos-esque. But, but going back to what you said, Matt, to Mark, is that this seems to me to be playing on the idea that Ant-Man losing any of these hopes uh, is going to crush him and hurt his heart, right? And, and that the loss, either the loss is a loss of hope or the loss is going to be accompanied by hope, right? And um, what I'm saying is that it seems like these scenes where these characters that are close to Ant-Man are being talked about as if they're going to leave and uh, and also that his heart is going to be crushed seem to me to be setting up the next movie. And the idea that it will heal in time seems to pretend, perhaps correspond to some of the rumors that we've had or some of the speculation that we've had that some form of time travel is going to have to be necessary in order for the stuff that happens in Infinity War to be addressed in the second Infinity War movie. So you're just um, saying so you're saying Marty you're not thinking fourth dimensionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What well, I'm saying that like there are these little conversations that are seeded through the movie that are not really relevant to the plot of the movie as we watch it because Ant-Man doesn't lose anybody during the movie. He never has his heart ripped out. There's no character in this movie who has their heart ripped no, out. No, and the, the the well, I mean, there's the FBI guy, but that's literal. So. <laughs> and he, you know, he deserved it. Uh, but right. the the uh, yeah, it's interesting, and it's it's clear the movie is at pains to to almost um, promise right to 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 verify that it's not going to be that kind of movie. When it's like, okay, we'll yep. go after the kid. It's like, nope, nope, bridge too yep. far. Going yep. after that yep. adorable moppet. You know, is and yep. by the way, they got one hell of an adorable kid, right? Uh, the to to play his daughter. Like, nope, can't go. We won't. We won't do that. Like, we'll do a. We'll do. We'll blow up a lot of San Francisco, but we won't do that. Um, Another example yeah. of that is the beginning of the movie. You have Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer. Right. You have Ant-Man and the Wasp G1. Right. And one of them has to die and and sort of pass through the sort of transformative death to some sort of otherness and leave the other one behind grief stricken. And then at the end of the movie, you know, the one the, the old guard goes back and gets back the person that was lost. And then there's a long moment where they let you think that Michael Douglas didn't make it back. And then he's like, what about me? <laughs> he like walks out of the back. And there's a lot of speculation that this is how the next Avengers movie is going to work, right? That like the reason that all of the characters who are on new contracts died in the end of the last movie is that in the next movie, the old guard is going to sacrifice them to bring them back in some way, right? And it's like uh, – and, and it's here they sort of play that. They tease that. And then they're like, no, no, no. This isn't that kind of movie. This isn't that kind of movie, <laughs> and which they seem to be saying constantly, except that it's sort of both because it's saying these things and then it's kind of laughing at them or joking them away. Uh, so there's like a presence. I don't know. For me, it made the funny parts of the movie much sweeter and funnier. Well, right, the yeah, sad parts right. were sad because they work in they work in a similar way, right? Like at moments of high tension uh, or of high stakes, the, there's the Whedon-esque move of sort of talking of doing dialogue across currents to that. I suppose it's also a Tarantino move a lot of the time, right? Where the the dialogue is um, pointedly trivial uh, and sort of making jokes like laughing in the face of death uh butch cassidy and the sundance kid style i mean i suppose i'm 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 now like neck deep in reference i'm in the quantum realm of of movie references <laughs> here but uh that 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 is the the whedon-esque move but here i mean i feel like it's it's the same but different because the tone uh of all of those is it's very goofy here right it's yeah. it's very sort of silly and sweet whereas it's sort of sorkin-esque in the uh in the whedon verse right where the oh, yeah. the it's a kind of like at the at the moment of greatest peril that is the moment for a display of erudition right and that that uh uh that's slightly different here yeah i mean just remember Undercarriage washes are for our sister states that have much snowier and saltier conditions that damage the underside of your car, right? Like, like this is California. We don't have to wash the undercarriages of our cars. We get to be shiny and happy all the time. Everywhere else, people are sad, right? But then later in the movie, he's like, oh, my God, this undercarriage is filthy, <laughs> right? Which is, to me, this sense of, like, we've managed to keep the wolf at the door here for Ant-Man and the Wasp, whereas everywhere else in the MCU is a very 
very salty place right now uh, and corroded and damaged. It needs to get its underside, its un- its um, undercarriage washed off. But we believe heading into Ant-Man and the Wasp that it can't happen here. Uh, and and for an, to an extent, it doesn't until the very end, uh, which and even then they don't give you the full horror. They don't give you the full on like they make it happen very quick. They skip the part where they actually like look at each other and say something des- desperately sad and before they wink out of existence. And they only show you the floating ash, which I think was a kindness. Wait, uh, what, what is yeah. that? Remind me the span of time that elapses in Avengers Infin- Infinity War. One day. I yeah. Think, right. But. That that day, there's a lot of events in that yeah. day, right? Like a, a floating hula hoop appears vertically in the sky uh, mm-hmm. above New York. Things are always appearing in the sky above New York. You'd think we'd that we'd like have a good warning system for those now, right? Like things <laughs> things that have appeared out, out of nowhere in the sky, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, in no particular order. A Chitari invasion, the the building that looks like a fang that the dark elves are in in Thor two. <laughs> Like, London got effed up. Yeah, exactly. And everyone right. forgot about that one. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. gr- yeah, uh, the Greenwich neighborhood or region or district in in particular. Like, what uh, what else has just appeared out of the sky in uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? It seems like more than well, one. Well, like a thing. whole flock of of unmanned Iron Man ar- uh, armors right. blowing up a construction site just sort of shows up and happens and right. then leaves. Yeah, uh, a city got dropped, lifted up into the sky, and then dropped back down where it where I yeah. guess it had been all along, right? Like, uh, yeah. so you'd think that we'd be on high alert for this kind of thing. There's, there's like a pretty, there's a pretty high tolerance for all of this very life-threatening strangeness in San Francisco. I mean, I guess it really is a live and let live kind of city. But in the 24 hours, right? If they, if the, if Thanos is snapping his finger as the experiment continues, right? Like as the in the middle of the experiment, that means for 24 hours. Hours, there's been a floating hula hoop above New York, or at least it appeared 24 hours ago. So, in what in what quantum realm is it a good idea to say, "Hey, a floating hula hoop uh, appeared over New York t- yesterday"? You know what? Today, let's proceed with our experiment as planned. <laughs> you know, well, I, I mean, it, it might have created some urgency for that the set of actions. Like for whatever yeah. reason, like they gotta like well, we gotta get the stuff because it might be important. I because also wonder, are yeah, crazy now. How much time really is it? Because I said one day, because that seems like the neat answer. But we go from it being night in Scotland, where uh, the Vision and the Scarlet Witch get attacked by the uh, the um, Black Order, and then it's it's day in New York when Doctor Strange fights the rest of the Black Order. And then it's day in Wakanda. And you got to think that Wakanda is close to the same time zone as Scotland. Like, at most, it's three hours off, right? And so then, I guess, what, was it early morning and in the afternoon? I guess, this is the kind of thing where we'd have to go back and determine how much time has there, has actually passed. When it, When is this in California? Is this, like, 7 o'clock in the morning? And they just haven't watched the news yet. Like, they just got up and did this thing. And they're, and the reason that they didn't uh, they didn't look is because they're, you know, they're they're old. And they don't, they sleep. They don't stay up late and watch, like, uh, you know, they don't watch Johnny Carson anymore since he went off the air. They don't they don't bother with the newfangled yeah, stuff. Yeah, but, you know, like, the, the if you think of the, the media consumption habits, right, yeah. of the Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, Michael Douglas generation, you know, yeah. they're going to be like watching a television newscast or something. Don't you think they're going to be like think so. watching the Today Show, you know, and, and uh, you know, oh, oh, that, that, that Kathy Lee and Hoda. Are they, is that the Today Show or is that Good Morning America? I, I honestly. That's I the Today know. Show. Okay. That's, the Today Show is Hoda, I think, right? Isn't Hoda in the Today Show? Yeah. And yeah. Hoda Copy and Kathy Lee are the, right. you know. Um, right, like Al Roker, the you know they're they're watching uh, they're they're watching that, and you, you'd think that being shot in New York, there would be some passing reference. Maybe it was a rerun that day. You know? maybe, <laughs> they maybe it was a, a yesterday show. Well, you'll note that the TV isn't working. So because they go to Ant-Man's house, they show you Ant-Man's house after the credits in the second after credit sequence. And it's all please stand by and the TV's not functioning. So maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Um, I mean, of course, I don't some, know how much time elapses, but go ahead. OK, 
I, I know we're, we're we're kind of making light of this, right? Yeah. But this is this is all uh, mostly in jest here. But like Matt, just so we're all clear in the open here, like, are you kind of like bent out of shape by how the end credits thing um, really throws everything all askew? Here at the end, and, and make a huge tunnel shape shift in it by the probability that three people standing on the one same roof. in eight, yeah. one in eight, Matt. It's not that long a shot. There's a lot of rooftops in <laughs> but, San Francisco. Let, let me let me rephrase this question as another question: What happens in the movie Ant Man and the Wasp? <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, it's a whole bunch of people where we know half of them are going to die and they don't, and it's about them loving each other, and that's it's so that we can feel a certain amount of sublime beauty and sadness when the half of them that are going to die inevitably yeah. die. And, yeah, and, and, and then to be clear, after the movie is over, yeah, then we see that other thing that happens and re- recontextualizes a lot of right, uh, and right, connects right. to other stuff. Yeah, and and also it's about it's about heroes. And it's, I think a lot of it is the reason that they're stiff arming the Avengers out of here. The reason that they're holding Thanos's forehead while he swings harmlessly underneath their arm for the, you know, 99% of the duration of this movie is that they are reimagining the relationship between a hero and a tragedy of this scale. Uh, they're just setting a new expectation because in the Avengers, so like, okay, so the, the conversation that Paul, that Ant-Man, Paul Rudd, a.k.a. the brother from Clueless, a.k.a. the Mac and Me guy from Conan O'Brien, did he do that, by the way? Did he go on Conan and do the Mac and Me clip again? I gotta look that up because that's always amazing. And as soon as we knew the new Ant-Man movie was coming out, I was looking forward to that. But you guys know that, right? You know what I'm talking about? No, no, I don't. So, so every uh, brief tangent, every time Paul Rudd has goes on Conan O'Brien's talk show, he brings a clip of his movie, which ends up being a scene from the film Mac and me, the like shameless McDonald's promotion E.T. ripoff Mac and me, where a child rolls down a hill and off a cliff in a wheelchair and it ends with like a comic take to the camera by a puppet alien. And he has run this clip like at least 10 times over the course of the last like 15 or 20 years on Conan O'Brien's show. And it is a delight. He doesn't do it every single time, but it is a delight when it happens. And I hope it happened this time. So I'll have to double check that. Leave a note in the comments if you like the Mac and Me clip. Like, this, from, so uh, like, the, like the Swallows returning to Capistrano. Exactly. You, you know, you're, you're glad to see yeah. the Mac and Me clip. Hey, uh, no, tangent, tangent. Sure. <laughs> um, do you know how old Paul Rudd is? 75. <laughs> Paul Rudd is 49 years old. Yeah. Doesn't geez. that doesn't that seem long in the tooth for like the for the sort of characters that he plays and his demo? Like he's a young father in this movie, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. He, I mean, he started the movie This is forty in what, uh in his mid forties. So not that far off. I don't know. No, yeah, it, it absolutely it absolutely is. But I think there's a I think there's a big diff- distance between the the like the actual Paul Rudd and like the commercial Paul Rudd, you know, he's I I don't know. I don't think of him as being when I think of his type, right? I don't think of that that type as sort of a guy approaching middle age. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't play that. Oh God, you know what? Out of out of curiosity, sorry, I'm, I'm googling on my on my phone so as not to make the typey typey sound because I had to relocate in my house. Robert Downey Jr. Age. Well, I didn't type any of that. Let's see what giggle. Let's see what giggle gets for me. I'm trying to giggle that. Um, because he plays uh, characters who are. Um, he's 53, right? So there's only uh, four years difference between Paul Rudd, Ant Man, and uh, Robert Downey Jr. Tony Stark, right? And Tony Stark is doing in that four years, it's the difference between like a young father subplot about, you know, uh, what about responsibility and like being ready for a partnership, you know, and being, being yeah. a, a reliable and stable partner and uh, a late middle age subplot about mortality, or I guess a middle middle age subplot yeah. about mortality, right? Like that's, that, that's not that the long way around the barn to make the point. I know, but like, I feel like Paul Rudd plays characters who whose concerns are considerably younger than than yeah. the actor's age would suggest. Him and Vin Diesel both. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, um, Vin Diesel plays a teenager. <laughs> uh, so so to back it up, I was mentioning that Ant Man has a conversation with his daughter in the loft of their house. 
I think it's like a bedroom. I don't know whether it's her bedroom or the playroom or the attic or loft or whatever. Um, it's got some drawings from her. It's got a Papa's on in it, which is a delight. And in that room, they discuss the fundamental questions of Infinity War, which is I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and everything that I've done has failed and I failed you. And I can't cope with the fact that I've failed you. Right. This is the question at the end of Infinity War, when everybody watches not just anybody die, but the person that they feel closest to and most responsible for has died. Right. Like the the guard watches the Black Panther die. Robert Downey Jr. watches his surrogate son die. You know, Captain America watches the Winter Soldier die, et cetera, et cetera. Rocket watches Groot die. And, And there's this sense of like, I failed you. And that's the part of it that I can't handle. And the daughter comes back and says, well, sure, you know, but. You've you've got to do it. You've got to go out there and you've got to fix it. Uh, Maybe you can't do it alone. Maybe you have to have a friend to watch your back, but you have to do it. And the reason that you have to do it and can do it is because you're the world's greatest grandma, (laughs) right? Which I thought is just such another wonderful example of the movie directly addressing and also completely undercutting the seriousness uh, and tone and themes of the Infinity War movies, <laughs> the, the world's greatest grandma trophy, which you could see also sitting on Tony Stark's desk, I think, without too much trouble. The same sort of attitude, sort of self-deprecating uh, aggrandizement that goes on. Um, yeah, and it just it felt I mean, I cried for that entire scene because I was convinced that the daughter was dying and I'm still convinced that the daughter is going to be gone. Uh, I mean, she might not be. It might be the kind of thing where it's a bait and switch and they want you to think the daughter is going to be gone because they set up so much stuff with the daughter. Oh, my gosh. It was like freaking it was like Steven Seagal straight to video hanging out with his family. And I'm like, there's only one reason that this guy is hanging out with his family. And that's because the mafia is going to machine gun them in five minutes. Right. Like this is this is the same side of Pete that's watched too many late night action movies and was convinced that the tiger was going to eat the kid in Life of Pi. So he didn't watch it. (laughs) It's like, uh, you know, he's going to have to go out for vengeance because someone's going to kill his family. And that person is Thanos. Um and and that's what I, I mean. Maybe it'll be a situation now where the daughter will live and he'll have to, like, speak to the daughter in her dreams from the quantum realm or something that they'll be entangled in some way so that she can help him get out in much the same way that they, like, maneuver out that tiny maze that they have to go through. Or maybe the next movie is going to open with Ant-Man has lost his daughter. His heart has been ripped out. His hope is out there. Right. And is it gone or not? Right. And, and so on and so forth. Sorry. Well, I, when I, you I, say when you say the next movie, do you think that that, you know, Ant-Man three is going to open with this or no? I or think Infinity War two is going to open with it. Going to going to open with it. That would be well, I feel like yeah. that would be bold or that at the outset at, you know, at the, you know, curtain up moment of Infinity War two, that this is the situation that they're in. And when we cut in what I'm sure will be a kind of dizzying, uh, you know, cross universe, you know, uh, um, array of of cross cutting storytelling, right? When we get to the Ant Man plot, that that that's what the situation is going to be. Yeah, I think what's going to happen is Paul Rudd's going to have to find his way back, and then everyone's going to have to explain to Paul Rudd what's happened, and that way everyone gets the exposition to the movie. <laughs> that's how it's going to work. I think. I mean, I don't know. There'll probably be some other crazy action sequence at the beginning or something like that. But a scene where Paul Rudd escapes from the quantum realm wouldn't necessarily be the worst way to kick off the next. Yeah, movie. conveniently Although, with yeah. a canister of the magic stuff that uh, Michelle Pfeiffer used to heal Ghost. Um, right, before we right, keep right. moving on, um, it's just a quick observation since we brought up the world's greatest grandma trophy. Yeah. Right, the writers could have put anything. On that trophy, anything, right? Completely out of context, like, uh, you know, Little League Rookie of the Year or something like that. Um, but they chose World's Greatest Grandma. The only explanation that I can uh, give for that is that Paul Rudd becomes Michelle Pfeiffer's character, right? So that to the to uh, Cassie, to Paul Rudd's daughter, to Amy's daughter, uh, Paul Rudd, in a way, is also the grandma. Because that would Michelle make sense. Pfeiffer. Yeah, yeah. The is, only- is there anything else to read into that? The only other thing that struck me about a potential grandma would be if Captain Marvel has a daughter 
when she gets put in stasis or whatever happens to her in the next Captain Marvel movie. And she comes out of because it might not not be Ant-Man. Things happening to Ant-Man in this movie might be things that are happening to Ant-Man, but they also might be things that are happening to other characters that are being represented through him. So, for example, in this movie, Ant-Man gets an emergency priority text message indicating a high emergency. Right. Yet another direct pull from Infinity War that is then incredibly undercut by it being about, like, where are my soccer shoes? Right. <laughs> and uh, and I can't help you find your soccer shoes. Uh, but this is a direct pull from the after credit scene in Avengers Infinity War. That's not something that's going to happen to Ant-Man. That's something that's going to happen to Captain Marvel. Right. And so in that sense, Ant-Man might here be a proxy for like a bunch of different characters. When Ant-Man gathers like Luis and T.I. and the Baba Yaga guy together into that posse that they might be standing in for the Avengers. They might not necessarily be, you know, the posse symbolizing what they'll do in the next movie. They might be like a different posse. You know, the security team, uh, you know, it's like the security team is going out of business. It might be a fun way of saying the Avengers are going to break up because there's no purpose for them anymore. Uh, and they're there, you know, they have no clients, that kind of thing. The government is gone and nobody can pay for them or Tony Stark has pulled out. But yeah, but but the world's greatest grandma, if Captain if Captain Marvel has a daughter, when the events of the Captain Marvel movie happen, then the events of Infinity War are like 25 years later. She could potentially be a grandma. That's the only other thing that came to mind. But I guess she could also be the Michelle Pfeiffer character uh, that yeah. would also make him the world's greatest hey. grandma. Okay, so since I brought up Michelle Pfeiffer and yeah. the canister of magic stuff and the healing and things like that, can we talk about the quantum realm? Yeah, can we sure. go to the quantum realm? Like, what it has your there? favorite what animal in it, Mark? Realm? Your your favorite animal of all time? Oh, oh the, you are the tart. The, yeah, the tardigrade. Ah. <laughs> Just okay. Really quick aside about Star Trek Discovery because, frankly, we've spent way too much time on this site talking about it. We did a series of Star Trek Discovery uh, recaps, which uh, that and it plot very featured, nearly killed us. It, it very nearly, nearly killed us. The plot of Star Trek Discovery, prom- at least for a while, prominently featured tardigrades, yeah. um, and uh, we didn't like it either the, the tardigrade plot or the show. And we were, I was a, a little bit disturbed to, to see them come back. But yeah, they, they are in the quantum realm, right? As they're shrinking, they almost get eaten by tardigrades. Um, and then there's a casual throwaway reference to tardigrades um, uh, before in, in the post-credit sequence, right? Before Paul Rudd uh, shrinks again and goes into the, uh, into the quantum realm. Um, and, but to, you know, to zoom back out for a second, right? You know, uh, a, a lot, a big deal is made about the quantum realm. I don't think we really learn a whole lot about the quantum realm. There's just a lot of talk about how it's dangerous, how it messes with you and how Michelle Pfizer have been changed by it. And then she just comes out of it with these powers that uh, presto change can heal ghost. Um, I, I think a lot of it is still left to the imagination or perhaps the future movies to come out. Um, or did I miss something? Ghost is a very good Indigo Girls song, by the way. It's off of, <laughs> uh, you know, Rites of Passage. It's a, re- it's a really good song. It just it Solid just... movie, too. Yeah. Demi Moore, Patrick Swayze. <laughs> uh, I, was talking, I think about their movie Tardigrade, wherein Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore play incredibly difficult to kill micro animals that could survive in the vacuum of space. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I wonder what the the sequel would be. Tardigrade two, the 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 requickening or the the I don't know the digestion. Um, I'm uh, I I was thinking a lot about the quantum realm and sort of Michelle Pfeiffer and what it represents. Like whatever you know, where they don't have. It doesn't seem like they have food. You know, she didn't have yeah. human companionship, but she had access to a full line of cosmetic surgery the, <laughs> i mean my oh. god they have lip fillers in the quantum realm they've got lip fillers for days um i was thinking about this do you remember limbo in uh limbo in um oh christopher nolan inception that's how you know I'm getting uh, yeah. how yeah, yeah, yeah. old I can remember. Like the, this, the quantum realm here was sort of limbo, right? Like it's a kind of shapeless, formless uh, place. It's even represented in a similar way. It sort of like ref- folds back and reforms on itself. The the ground changes shape. The colors are are. I mean, it's a different color palette, but they're you know non realistic and and uh, stuff like that. And you kind of get you kind of get swallowed and you're mind a little bit gets um your mind gets messed with and i was trying to think of of this and and what the the relevance of it seems like it's not the first time i've seen 
something something like that you know not not just the the dimension that general zod and whatnot was imprisoned in but it seems like this this sort of sense of a shapeless formless you know a sort of um scientific black site you know off the grid is is an image for our time in some way but i'm not entirely sure uh, what that way is. I, I wonder if it's a metaphor for being disconnected from the internet. <laughs> well, it's from 2001, a space odyssey. So it predates that, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. The idea that like, you don't have to deal with, with, uh, what's well, it's about being, well, in that it's psychedelic, right. In the sense that yes. it's about separation from your ego, uh, right. So, I mean, you said yes loud enough that I think you want to add something to that. Oh, no, no. Sorry. It was it was just it was the enthusiasm of my yes. That, oh, yeah. That, that accounted for the vo- volume that in. Yeah. And it's but that there's like right. There's a model of, you know, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey is actually a really great example because it's bad. It's scary, but it's not all bad and it's not all scary. And like, actually, right. it's only our hang ups that make it scary. And if you get over your hang ups. You know, you might actually, you know, you might actually get uh, get enlightened in the quantum realm. Right. Right, right, right. I, I would compare it to it makes me think of Ronnie James Dio, the, the heavy metal rocker. Uh-huh. Uh, the, and as I think we discussed this a little bit around the time that we talked about the Hobbit and the Battle of the Five Armies, which has a similar sort of feel to it in the sense that, like, in the development of music that was communicating a dissociation of the self from the kind of the sort of known social role of people into this sort of free mind space. It seems like one doorway is through psychedelia and the kind of neurological and cognitive and dissociative experience of of kind of not being within yourself. But then there's also this sort of shamanistic mythological trance state where you can get there through like the occult, right? Or through like uh, great, like sort of ancient stories of, and past lives. This is like the feeling of like Conan the Barbarian and how like, you know, Robert E. Howard and uh, Lovecraft were actually like buddies. And there's like something similar in their work between the sort of like hidden depths of madness of the sort of eldritch horrors and also like the distant mists of the past with the sort of, uh, you know, Conan crushing thrones beneath his sandal clad feet. Right. And these are all sort of ways of getting away from the location of the current self in the current time. Or the, the references to Baba Yaga in this movie. Right, 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 right. You know right. what I mean? That, that, like, sort of engaging that that uh, ancient legend. You know uh, yeah. that it, you know, it sort of situates us in in a land where, you know, science isn't the only science isn't the only force, right? And it's not the it's not the only path to the um, to the sort of numinous to the numinous realm. Right. Right. And actually that actually, that actually might, might get at it. Right. Like, because you can't, I don't know, unless you're making like a Hallmark movie uh, of the week or something or something that, that plays on, you know, that plays for a demo that is not the demo of the, the Marvel cinematic universe as a story. It's, it's actually kind of a, a, a poverty as a storyteller, because it's so it's so rich when you can do it but like these days you know w- storytellers don't really have access to a numinous realm you know it it all has to be kind of explained away in quantum physics or you know what have you whatever kind of scientific uh uh rubric you're working in Rather than just saying, you know, it's that way because, I don't know, ancient curse, right? Or uh, um, There was a prophecy that only Chun-Li could kick M. Bison in the head. (laughs) 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 The prophet had a very specific set of interests. (laughs) Why is she the chosen one? There's no indication that she's the chosen one. Sorry, sorry, continue, continue. Yeah, well, right, and it's, sure, it absolutely can be misused. Well, so, and I feel like I feel like prophecy, like wrapping, you know, 
straight up hero's journey storytelling in like an ancient prophecy is is not the most not the most interesting move uh, that you can make. But but there is a, there I think there is a sense in in which the sort of numinous realm stuff can can stand in for kind of like personal spiritual growth or personal kind of attainment of maturity or things like this because it's not all spells and stuff like that. Sometimes you have to like sit on a mountain for a long time, you know. Uh, and then Luke Skywalker throws the lightsaber over your uh, over your shoulder back into the ocean. God, I'm sorry, I've lost I've lost the thread. Help help me. <laughs> so so I think what's no- interesting about this is I liked how the quantum realm was similar and different from Doctor Strange, the movie. And yeah. Doctor Strange is the dark realm, right? The other dimension that Doctor Strange goes to where Dormammu lives, who loves to make a deal like Monty Hall or Wayne <laughs> Brady. And uh, <laughs> Dormammu, I've come to bargain. And the psychedelic trips, where Doctor Strange is doing what you're talking about, sort of, right? In that he is going to go sit on the mountaintop, but there's this pressure in our contemporary culture that it needs to be instrumental. It's, it's the old... Uh, why do we take for granted that my, when Microsoft asks, where do you want to go today, right? Why should we take for granted that we have to go anywhere? <laughs> why is there an assumption that we have to do something, right? Uh, and it's because of the sort of instrumental, uh, you know, industrialized, you know, human mind at this point, uh, right? Which is always has to be working on something. Something always has to be happening. Uh, but no, you can actually go somewhere if you just, you know, tune out and pro, turn pro on. Pro tip, productivity podcast, overthinking. <laughs> <laughs> But but it's interesting because this locates Ant-Man among the shamans and among the wizards. And that's interesting because he's a different sort of wizard than what we've dealt with in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to this point. Uh, we've had a couple of different kinds of wizards who are capable of traversing great distances. You know, we've had Loki, Thor after a fashion, you know, especially post-Ragnarok. Uh, you know, even, even, even Groot is something of a, of a shaman figure uh, with a sort of deeper knowledge of the mysteries uh, to a sense – uh, it, to an extent. But uh, but yeah, that Ant-Man is a different kind of that. This is a different kind of magic and a different kind of wizard. And I liked how the bottom of it was like gloopy. Like there was a real there was a firmament to it. And you could go out there and you could stand on it. Right. You could stand on the bottom of the quantum realm like you could pass through that darkness and void and silence and then fall like a drop of water into that kind of splashy Bob Ross palette at the bottom of at the bottom of smallness. Right. And it was all really it was really cool in that respect, but different, not about the kind of you didn't get the sense that it was about the kind of stimulation of the mind. It was definitely more about this sort of mystery of what if you were insignificant what if you were so insignificant that what if you were so insignificant that minor characters from two episodes of Star Trek Discovery pose like existential threats to you? Right. Like and could eat you whole. What if you were so insignificant that you were stuck on the bottom of the gum on the bottom of the bottom is shoe? And, and, and that was the situation that you had to deal with in your life. And you had to have the courage to step forward and go out there and find Michelle Pfeiffer and leave her surgeon there, you know, because his work is done. Yeah. What, but, uh, right. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, well, it's, it's probably Dr. Strange. I mean, he, you know, those, that, that was some top notch work and like could only oh, yeah. have been done by those gifted hands, right. Aided by the, the, uh, the dark not, magic. From not the, that Michael Douglas hasn't has his share of work done. That's no, for sure. no, no, absolutely. Let's not, uh, yeah, let's not, um, he, <laughs> I, look, I come to praise Michelle Pfeiffer, not to to never mind. Uh, There's nothing to bury. It's just a cloud of dust, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I thought well, she was good in the movie, and I like her character. I like her character as like was, a future hero. Yeah, yeah. She, she was uh, definitely definitely good in the movie, and and I sort of I sort of liked her as well. And she had good. She gave good magic. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that 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 thing that you do as an actor, where you like. Put your hands on someone and close your eyes, and and the CGI flows through you into them. <laughs> like that's a hard thing to do, you know. And like I, if you don't think so, if, you know, if you think that acting is easy, I encourage you. You have a uh, you have in your phone a camera that is the, superior to cameras used in ninety five percent of of the history of cinema, you know. Yeah. And uh, you can go make uh, you can go make a Buster. Keaton movie, you know, in in on your street in your city, right? Except you can't because it's hard. So it's left as an exercise for the listener, right? Like, you know, take take a little home movie, get someone, get a significant other or a buddy or a you know whatever to film you. Like, find your cat, you know, 
right? And put lay hands <laughs> upon your feline, <laughs> you know, and close your eyes and make a uh, yeah, a dog will do. You know, um, dogs are, are too good. They're, they're too in the moment. They're, they're better actors than any of us. So a cat, a cat would be preferable because a cat just, just doesn't care. And like, try to like transmit, uh, cosmic energy to your cat and, um, you know, and it will be terrible, right? Like when you look (laughs) at that, when you look at that film of yourself trying to do that, you will realize how hard it actually is, uh, to do that in, in point of fact. And she gave good, she gave good magic when she was, when she was healing, um, healing ghost, you know? Yeah. The, the moral of the story is never send an Avenger to do a witch of Eastwick's job. Right? <laughs> Title. Um, so in, in a, uh, in a, in a thing, in a, uh, Mar- in a cinematic universe, right? There's the word I was looking for in a cinematic universe where we can't really afford to create new villains, you know that because we already have the kind of the ur villain uh that that we're going to get in this round this go round um finding the antagonist uh in this took took some work did ghost work for you as an antagonist i mean do you feel like she was small potatoes do you feel like uh she managed to kind of bring the stakes and things like that i don't know mark did you did you like did you like the uh the sort of central protagonist antagonist relationship in this movie uh, it, 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 it was fine. There you go. That's <laughs> You're right. Damning with faint praise. We've seen this before. Um, uh, there is a a person who you could argue essentially like is a victim. Um, you know, partly of just things in the environment, but it's perhaps a little bit more specifically of the specific forces in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, in particular, Shield and kind of its like means justify the end. Um, way of doing business, uh, even when they're when they're doing the right thing, to say nothing of all when Shield is Hydra. Um, and I, I, the, another example that's, I guess, in a certain to a certain extent, is um, the villain from Spider-Man: Homecoming, Michael Keaton's character, right? Who uh, you could argue was a kind of a victim of Shield bulldozing his way through, right? They took his contract, and he got super uh, pissed off at the at Shield, and and became this twisted uh, evil guy when he was started out as just like uh, someone just trying to make a buck and support his family. Um, likewise, Ghost right, just starts out as a poor kid, um, a child, um, is turned into warped into a soldier, and then starts to do all these terrible things. Um, so all that is to say, like we've seen it before. Um, but it works in the context of this and that, you know, you, you have someone who is working against the characters, but you kind of sympathize with her. So um, was it uh, enjoyable? Yes. Did it work for the story? Yes. Was it original? No. Am I complaining about it? Nah, not really, because the rest of the movie, uh, the enjoyable aspects of it far outweighed any any weaknesses of it. I don't know. Yeah. Pete, uh, Matt, what do you guys think of the villain? I liked her a lot. I thought that Ghost was a great character, and I thought that she was very well performed. I really liked her relationship with Goliath and the way that that all played out. But I felt like it was pretty clear that Ghost and Ant-Man and company all needed to get on the same side about halfway through this movie. That they they should have recognized, and they did recognize, that they had more in common than they had different. And uh, that that is part of that. I mean, this reinforces again, the thing that I keep coming back to in this me in this movie, which is that the villain in this movie is Thanos. And the villain in this movie is not the ghost. The villain in this movie is not Walton Goggins, Cadillac Jones guy from justified, you know, Shane from the shield guy from the magnificent seven remake, right? The villain is that Thanos is going to kill everybody. And, and, and even, even, uh, I would even say that we get a Thanos in this movie. Who's also something of a villain in this movie. And, uh, he's woo. He's, uh, he's agent woo. Played by uh, Ray Park Jr. No, what's that guy? What's that actor's name? <laughs> Randall Park. Randall Park. So it's yep. close, right? So Randall Park plays Thanos in this movie, uh, in that he is the killjoy who makes sure that that Paul Rudd can't have any fun, uh, and who punishes him for like stepping out of his lane. Uh, the one who says uh, stuff like, "Oh, I'm sorry, that was insensitive of me. They were your friends. I just needed a win. I hope you understand, right? Like, which is a very Thanos thing to say." Um, but this idea that like part of this, that part of the movie is that Paul Rudd needs to live the life of the Ant-Man, right? Like the Ant-Man needs to be anting with the Wasp and they need to do it together. And what is the obstacle that's going to stand in the way of them doing it together? 
uh, and the ghost isn't that obstacle. The ghost is the means. The ghost is the like catalyst that makes all the fun happen. Uh, the ghost isn't even what Walton Goggins was expecting. So like either the villain is the uh, is is the the people who hired Cadillac Jones, which we don't know who they are. That might be Chitiri. It might be Thanos. It might be the Black Order. It might be. Somebody from the Shield TV show. Maybe it was. Maybe Luke Cage got a good maybe, insurance ooh, settlement. Maybe it was Michael shop. Keaton. Maybe it was oh. Michael Keaton because he traffics in, in technology and stuff. Oh ooh. man, Michael Keaton is so. So he's got a contract with a New York construction company with a government contract. So Michael Keaton is taking out a bunch of loans to buy Hank Pym's lab on the black market to make expandable skyscrapers. Is what you're saying, and that's the exactly. plot. Exactly, it's all about real estate. It is. It is development yeah. location, location, location uh, is the secret to real estate. You know, in San Francisco, they are experimenting with smaller and smaller houses in order to uh, to fit everybody. Right. Uh, but yeah, but I don't know. I don't know if, if any of them really serves if the people who are in the movie to be the foils serve as antagonists. I mean, it also ends with like a Shakespeare scene where Dogberry and Verges talk to the cops about how they've managed to apprehend the the ruffians and villains who are trying to spoil Claudio's, you know, Claudio's wedding, right? Um, I mean, I don't know, Matt. I've talked enough about this. What, what do you think about this stuff? He is, he is a most respected fellow. <laughs> yes, and, and I've committed many, I've committed many health code violations <laughs> in my restaurants. Disgusting ones. Actually, let it be said and let it be written down that I have committed health code violations. <laughs> <laughs> and what's more a householder go to the um i yeah i actually you know what i i uh i'm just putting this stake in the ground now whatever outdoor shakespeare company walton goggins wants to play dogberry in a production of much ado uh i'm gonna be there i'm going to fly <laughs> to that city and see that like i might even do like a marathon week of just seeing a whole a whole week's worth of performances walton goggins yeah Absolutely. Yes, I I think that she that that ghost there there were a couple of things where she stopped acting in her own interest and and at that point a character who's trying to do something who's trying to sort of accomplish a task you know um, and she's not a uh, uh, she's not a fundamentalist right she's not. Um, like Thanos is a fundamentalist, you know, she's not yeah. driven by a, a worldview or anything. She's trying to get her, her swoopy swoopy back, you know, her, you know, her quantum phasing, you know, whatever. She's trying to live. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. I mean, aren't, aren't we all right? Yeah. Isn't, I mean, isn't love the greatest quantum entanglement of all the, she's trying to do that. And like, she misses a chance to do what she wants better. Um, and it's not totally clear why has the the constant pain driven her mad has the is she just sick of all this s like uh d all of the above you know i think i think there there are a couple uh a couple holes in it but yeah the idea that like this needs to be a team and i guess they are by the end because they're you know they're collecting spores from the mycelial network in order to uh tardigrade (laughs) her back into existence um that that's a uh, you know they're they're a team, but that as you say, that needed to happen a little sooner in the the arc of the film. Yeah, and I don't think Lawrence Fishburne was the villain at all, although he was enabling it. I thought this was kind of fun, right? Like it's not necessarily the case that these sorts of stories because it, it's a comedy, right? This is a comedy that ends with like a double marriage uh, before everyone is reduced to ashes. But it's, it's that like uh, you know everyone gets reunited and and Lord Pete, willing if this, and the, you know if if this is your idea of a comedy remind me never to go to the Vegas Outdoor Shakespeare Festival <laughs> <laughs> with you. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's leave it there. If you would like to join the conversation about Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, go ahead and uh, leave a comment in the show notes. Go to overthinking.com. Click on the title of this episode that's there, and you'll find a place where you can leave a comment there. We've had some good comments recently. I want to figure out... Um, something to do with those. Uh, stay tuned for that. I have a couple ideas that might, um, that might be cool to incorporate comments back into the show. Thank you very much for listening. Mark and Pete, thank you very much for overthinking Ant-Man and the Wasp. And uh, we'll be back next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny 
it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Oh, guys, I meant to ask, what did you think of the after credits scene? The one with the ant playing the drums? Yeah, the, the real after credits scene, yeah. I, I mean, I thought that it was a hint that his daughter was dead, but we've established that I've seen the movie as pretty dark. What did you think? I, I thought it was kind of a troll. Like, uh, <laughs> you're, sort of, you're sort of expecting there to be after credit scenes that, like, reveal something about the next movie that give a hint the way it did at the end of Infinity War setting up Captain Marvel. You know, and so that that, like... This one was just like you, you waited, you know, you waited. And by the way, that ant playing the drums was in the trailers, you know, yeah, so like, yeah. you waited through the movie for for a scene that you've already seen in the, the trailer is a pretty big troll to me or not a troll, an ant. Ah. Isn't that also a sign that um, someone is out there still kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, controlling the ants? Right, because uh, the ants aren't so much like sentient in and of themselves, but uh, the the crew has the ability to uh, manipulate them. No, it's sadder. Them it's, them, right? it's sadder than that. It's still living its sad little Paul Rudd existence. It's still doing its programming. It's you know running through the the motions of Paul Rudd's life. It's you know, and all, yeah. it's it's also about how the cockroaches will uh, insects will outlive us. And uh, and what are the odds that that ant is still a point five times point five times point five? <laughs> one times in eight, Matt. The odds are one in eight. Anti-time data. <laughs> <laughs>